Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. And turn with me to the book of Micah, chapter 6. Micah chapter 6 this morning. We've been casting vision as a church. And to do this, we've been imagining our church in 10 years' time. We've been imagining our church in 10 years' time. What would you notice about our church in 2031 if you were able to travel into the future? And we've been sharing what we hope you would notice as uh, a church. And today actually marks our last sermon in this series. And if you've been with us for this series, and if you haven't, by the way, they're all posted on our website. I encourage you to, to catch up. You probably noticed the theme. Hope wants to embrace biblical holism. We want to reject false choices in Jesus' name. The false choice, for instance, that is biblical maturity and emotional and spiritual maturity. That's a false choice. Or the false choice that is faith in our everyday work. And in either or world, we want to embrace at hope the whole picture. Hope wants to be a holistic church. And for the past few weeks, we've been talking about embracing and embodying God's holistic gospel. How the good news of Jesus, in other words, fixes all that has been broken by sin. And that means the good news of Jesus fixes our vertical relationship with God in which we are at enmity, the scriptures say. And the good news of Jesus is that we now have relationship with God. But the good news of Jesus also fixes our horizontal relationships and how we relate to one another. And too often, I think we limit the gospel's reach to our vertical relationship with God, our internal life, you know, our spiritual life, our prayer life, our, our, our Bible reading life. But if you read the Bible for very long, you will begin to notice that the risen Jesus has a profound impact on all that he created all of life. And we're calling that gospel holism. And so for the past past few Sundays, we've explored how the gospel creates, for instance, a different kind of community in our midst, a cross-cultural community, one that's miraculously cross-cultural, in fact, one that ought to reflect the, the, the God that we serve, who is three in one, a community of difference and unity. And this is because why? Again, our gospel that we proclaim and that we embrace and that we ought to embody is holistic. It impacts our spiritual life and our community life. All right. Today, 
we're going to be looking at a famous passage in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, in particular verse 8. And in this passage, the prophet Micah reminds us what covenant love looks like. God's covenant love towards us and our covenant love towards him and others. That's what it's about. And you will notice that this too is profoundly holistic. God expects our response to his covenant love to spill out and into more than just our worship, but into our relationships. And so I'll read this starting in verse 1, and you can follow along. This is Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have you done? What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gagal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are a rock, you are a redeemer, and Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see you, Jesus, and not just learn new data, consider new facts, but Lord, that we would actually encounter you, Jesus, in a life-changing, transformative way, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, when I was in high school, I would often go to church by myself. Uh, My parents would go in the morning. But I would go to the 5 o'clock service in the evening. I know I was quite the rebel in those days, (laughs) going to evening church by myself. And I remember, like it was yesterday, sitting in the back pew all by myself, singing the songs by myself, reading and responding by myself, and going up to communion. But for the most part, I was in the back making deals with God. I've shared this before, but basically, when it was time to pray, I would say silently to God, God, if I do X, won't you do Y, please? And whatever X was and whatever Y was, I don't remember, gratefully. But that's how I approached God in those days. Now, I'd like to report to you that things have changed. 
But sadly, my life with God can continue to take that shape. I still make deals with God. I've just gotten more subtle about it. You know what I mean? So I'm not asking for God like for like a generous grade on a test that I obviously failed. Uh, but I can start to view my sacrifices that I'm making as a way to sort of satisfy God and as a way to sort of get him off my back. That's how I can creep into my relationship with God. And I think we all sort of struggle with this. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf calls us approaching God as a negotiator. He wonders if the way that we approach other people in the market, like in the free market, can start to shape and frame how we approach God. So for instance, how do we approach someone on Craigslist? Anybody sold anything or bought anything on Craigslist lately? What do you do? You're polite, but you negotiate. You really do. Um, we negotiate. We try and make an advantageous deal. That's how we relate on Craigslist. I recently sold something on Craigslist, and after some polite but firm negotiation, we came to a mutually advantageous agreement. Now, how many times do we approach God like that? Polite but firm negotiation. <laughs> God, I'll give you this area of my life if you promise to return uh, with good health or with, uh, with a well-adjusted child or, or a romantic relationship or a job promotion. Uh, we may never say it that way, but what happens when those things are taken away from us or when those things don't go the way that we want them to go? We are tempted to walk away from God. We're angry with God. Now, why is that? Because God didn't follow through with the negotiation, that's why. And so it reveals a sort of subtle way of negotiating with God. Now, approaching God in this way as a negotiator is nothing new. It's not unique to American life. It's not unique to late modern life. We see it in this ancient passage of Scripture. Micah. Micah was a prophet to Israel, to the southern kingdom in the 8th century BC when Israel was powerful and when they were comfortable with life and in the world see in the Bible God's people are often living in the margins so as nomads in the shadows or as slaves in Egypt or as exiles in Babylon or as persecuted minorities in the Roman Empire. But there's really kind of one exception to this marginal life on the margins, and it was the time in which Micah did his ministry. They were powerful. They were comfortable. And if you glance through Micah before the passage we just read, all you have to do is glance and catch a phrase here and there. You will notice that they were way off course as God's people, underneath their comfort, underneath their success, was deep-seated idolatry, property theft, corrupt leadership, corrupt business practices. And to get a flavor of this, all you have to do is look down from our passage starting in verse 10. I encourage you to do that. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? Now I'm going to use the New Living Translation so you get a flavor of this. Uh, so just listen. What shall I say about the homes of the wicked filled with treasures gained by cheating? 
What about the disgusting practice of measuring out grain with dishonest measures? Verse 11, how can I tolerate your merchants who use dishonest scales and weights? The rich among you have become wealthy through extortion and through violence. Your citizens are so used to lying that their tongues can no longer tell the truth. Now, that's just a taste of what's going on in Israel during the time and ministry of Micah. And so God takes issue with Israel. He takes issue with his own people. But shockingly, God's people were at the same time taking issue with God. They were accusing and complaining to God. And so in chapter 6, the verse that we just heard read aloud, God takes his people to court to settle the matter. And that's what verses 1 and 2 are all about in chapter 6. It really sets up a court scene. If you take a look again, with the mountains as witness, his own creation. And in this court scene, God is going to tell his people they're approaching him all wrong. The question in verse 6 sets this up. Take a look. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And so we see here in response to this question that there are really two ways to approach the true God. One is through contract and one is through covenant. One breaks God's heart and hurts other people. And one is in line with God's heart. It reflects God's heart in our relationships with others. Let's talk about the contractual approach because that's spelled out for us in verses 6 through 7. This is when we approach God by negotiating a contract with him. Like my high school self in the back pew of church. We try to negotiate with God and get him off our back through offerings. And this is how Israel was sort of approaching God these days. And Micah, in telling this, wants us to see with clarity how wrong, even how ridiculous it is to approach God in this way. For one, it minimizes sin. Look what it says in verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I even give my firstborn for my transgression? This minimizes our sin because when we negotiate with God by just giving of our offerings, what we're doing is we're saying that our sin, it just knocked the balances off a little bit. And if we just put a few things on our side of the ledger, we'll be even with God again. And it minimizes our sin. It also minimizes, therefore, God's salvation. It implies that God can be bought. Most egregiously, it, it, it minimizes God himself. It reduces him to every other religion. The offerings here are meant to sound absurd in their sort of anti, as they're upping in the ante, because in the end, the worshiper ends up like his pagan neighbors offering their own child to God. Their pagan neighbors regularly made child sacrifices to appease their gods, lowercase g. But Israel's God does not make this demand. The true God does not make this demand on his people. He actually calls it wicked in his law. So it minimizes God himself. And then it also minimizes our relationship with God. There is zero intimacy with God in this picture. It's all contract. 
It's all ritual, devoid and stripped of relationship. And so if the contractual approach is the wrong answer to how we approach God, then what is? Well, God tells us, not through contract, through covenant. Through covenant. That's how God wants his people to approach him. In the ancient world, a covenant was a a bond. It was a forever bond of faithfulness. And so God says to us, I'm not just God of the universe. I am your God. I am your God. I am yours. I will be forever faithful to you. Just look at verses three through five. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And then he tells them what he's done. How have I wearied you? For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I've redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Miriam. And oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. These are folks who wanted to curse God's people. And he's saying, remember how I blessed you and protected you in those moments. So look, God brought his people out of tyrannical bondage and slavery. God bought his people from the house of slavery. And then God blessed his people in the face of their enemies. It's amazing. They were accusing God of burdening. They were accusing God of burdening them. And it says in verse three, I've not wearied you. I've not burdened you. If anything, I've unburdened you by grace. I am a faithful covenant God. And my covenant is grace. Israel didn't deserve this or earn this. They just received it by grace. And so here's the question that sets us up for our exploration of of chapter 6, verse 8. What happens when we respond to God's unilateral grace, his covenant of grace? What happens when we respond to his salvation? What happens is total surrender. We give God our heart. And this is called covenant love. Our covenant love is in response to God's forever faithfulness. I will never let you go. Covenant love. And now we're ready to talk about verse 8. This bumper sticker verse that we probably all are familiar with. Because this verse is basically a three-part description, a three-part definition of covenant love. What's it say? Well, God has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the anatomy of a heart that is melted by God's grace, okay? That's, what, that's the image I want you to have. This is the anatomy of a heart that is melted by God's grace. And it's basically two things. A heart that's melted by God's grace is a heart for God, yes, but it's also a heart for others. And I want to talk about both. A covenant heart is a heart for God. And we're done dealing with God through contract, and we're now dealing with Him in response to His covenant grace. It is a heart that is melted and it therefore is a heart that is for God. And Micah shows us three things about this heart for God. Number one, a heart for God walks with God. Verse 8 says, walk humbly with your God. This word humbly can also mean, probably more accurately, thoughtfully. Walk thoughtfully or circumspectly with God. In other words, we are bringing God and His goodness and his kingliness over all things to mind all the time. 
We are cultivating awareness of God's presence all the time. His presence, His care. A heart that is melted by God's grace will, in other words, walk thoughtfully with God all the time. And will will purposely pursue a sort of mindfulness of God's covenant love in their life all the time. Notice Micah says here in verse 8 at the end, walk humbly with not just God, but who? What's it say? Walk humbly with your God. It's been said the gospel is in the possessive pronoun. The gospel is in the possessive pronoun. This is not a sort of distant God that we're talking about walking with, that we need to sort of appease and contract with. This is our God. This is the God who has pledged himself to us. This is a relationship God who has bound himself to you. And so a heart for God is a heart that walks with God. A heart for God also, number two, remembers God's salvation. So look at verse 5. It says in our text, God says, remember, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. Remember. He's he's asking us to remember and call to mind his redemptive actions in the past. This Hebrew word is zakhar. One of my favorite words. It is a word which, according to Hebrew scholar Brevard Childs, it means, quote, actualizing the past into the present. Having an intimate encounter with the great acts of the past. So moderns like us, when we hear the word remember, what do we think? We think call historical data to mind. History class. Remember the dates and the important people. And maybe the context. And then get an A in your test. That's how we approach history and remembering. But the Hebrew mind was so very different. The Hebrew mind, remembering means vividly participating in the past event as if you were there. That's what remembering means. And so this means a heart for God is constantly remembering. Not just walking with God, but remembering and bringing to heart what God has done. The finished work of God's redemption and salvation. Which for them was the exodus and for us is the greater exodus of the cross when Jesus rescued us by his great act. And so we're doing that. The heart for God, thirdly, knows God personally. We pursue intimacy with God. So verse 5, it says, remember what I've done. Why? If you continue, Micah tells us. He says, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. That word, know, yada, is not just cognitive knowledge, but it's emotional, affective, relational knowing. It's intimate knowing. When we remember or, or call to mind in a vivid way and participate even in what God has done and take part in it as if he was saving you, which by the way, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, Paul the apostle says, you too were nailed to the cross. That means your sins can't condemn you. It also means that sin doesn't own you. It's dead. The old man that Paul calls it. That is that is zakhar. That is recalling the past event and vividly participating in it. And so also we do that 
And we call to mind the gospel. Why? To remember, to know, to know so that we would pursue a knowledge of God that is relational, intimacy with God. So this is the difference between knowing about and knowing. Um, On this Father's Day, I am remembering my dad. Uh, Many of you got to know my dad uh, over the past few years before the pandemic. He would visit our church often, and you knew him. Some only knew about him or know only about him, because I've talked about him quite a bit here lately. But only I knew my dad as my dad. You know about my dad as my dad. I know my dad as my dad. That's how we know God covenantly. He is our God. We have relationship with him that cannot be altered. It is fixed. And so what do we do? We walk with him. We remember afresh how God rescued us at the cross. We pursue intimacy with him. That's what it means to have a covenant heart. It's to have a heart for God. A heart that's melted by God's grace is a heart that is for God. But that's only one-third of the definition in verse 8 for keeping track. One-third. The other two-thirds has to do with our horizontal relationships. God says that a heart that is melted by grace not only has a heart for God, not only walks with God, but also, look again at verse 8, does mishpat and loves hesed. Justice and mercy. I want to look at both. So a covenant heart is a covenant heart that's not just for God, but it's for others. And a covenant heart for others has, therefore, a heart for mishpat, or justice. The word here, mishpat, shows up all the time in the Old Testament. And its basic meaning is giving image bearers their due. All humans, from womb to tomb, have dignity because they bear God's image. It's been said that we don't give a person dignity. We recognize their inherent dignity by virtue of being an image bearer of the living God. And that is a gift that God gives us. Genesis 1. That truth. And so what Mishpat does, essentially, is recognizes the image of God in all people. In the Bible, this word plays out in largely two ways. I like how Old Testament scholar Dr. Tim Mackey and John Collins puts it. I'll quote them. Quote, Mishpat can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Retributive justice. Yet most often in the Bible, they go on, Mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them, taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice, end quote. They mentioned vulnerable people. That's because in the Bible, when we see this word mishpat, it pops up 
around what Old Test- what scholar Nicholas Folterstorff has called the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Some have said that in the agrarian culture of the Old Testament, these four groups of folks were probably a day or two away from death at any given time. That's how vulnerable they were. And so we encounter Mishpat paired with the vulnerable time and time again in the Bible. So Jeremiah 22, 3 as an example. Quote, this is what the Lord says. Do what is Mishpat and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do not wrong or violence to the foreigner, to the fatherless, or to the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. This is why Andy Crouch says, quote, justice in biblical terms is more than equal treatment under the law. It definitely is that. Mishpat means that, equal treatment, because we're all image bearers, no matter who we are. No matter how much money we have, no matter what. We're all image bearers of God, and therefore we have equal treatment under the law. Andy Crouch, though, says in biblical terms, it's more than that. It involves putting power at the service of the powerless and wealth at the service of the poor. As we just saw in Jeremiah 22, and frankly, what we see time and time again in Micah. As we read before the sermon, at the beginning of the sermon, we see in verses 10 through 12. Israel knows. Here's the thing. Israel knows what it's like to be vulnerable to injustice. Uh, Thank Egypt. But what did God do, the God of justice? God put his power at the service of the powerless in Egypt. What does Micah say? God lifted them out. God did mishpat. And so Israel, as God's people, were called to reflect this mishpat in their dealings. A heart that is melted by God's covenant love will be a heart that longs to unburden other people. But sadly, Micah, the book of Micah, is all about the ways that Israel's just acting just like Egypt did. They're playing Egypt amongst themselves. And so the whole point of Micah is to call Israel back. Micah tells them a heart that is melted by God's grace is a heart for mishpat, for justice. And then the second thing that he mentions here right on the other side is a heart for mercy. The second word here that defines, uh, that, is, that, is def- uh, that is translated here as kindness, in your translation maybe, is hesed, which is oftentimes translated mercy or loving kindness. It's covenant love. It's hesed. It's the kind of love that God has for us. And we are to love it ourselves and, and really play it out amongst ourselves. And in our horizontal relationships. One scholar says the practice of Hesed, the practice of Hesed, that's a great phrase. The practice of Hesed. The practice of Hesed is closely related to Mishpat because both pertain to the deliverance of the oppressed, the weaker party by a stronger party, but whereas the latter puts the accent on the action, the former puts the accent, that's the Hesed, on the attitude. Paul Miller, I love this definition of hesed in his book, The Loving Life, defines hesed love as helpfulness. Hesed helps others. 
we, the helped ones, by God himself, help others. That's, that's, that's the idea. And so we see that a covenant heart is a heart for justice and mercy because that is God's heart. God will one day right all wrongs as the God of justice. And he will not, he will, as it's been pointed out, he will do so not only retributively, but also restoratively. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. That word zadikah is, is right, deal, right dealings with one another. Okay, so God's heart is a heart for justice and mercy. And so a covenant heart that is in response to that will also be so. As my kids grow, I want them to become like me. I'm glad they're over there right now, so don't hear this. Um, I want them to become like me. I want them to like the things I like. I wouldn't mind if they become pastors. I would feel for them, but I wouldn't mind. It'd be great. I would love that. I, would, I, I love that they already love the things that I love. They love the Beatles. They love soccer. They, they like the things I like. I like that. I want that to happen more and more. And that's God's heart for us. Do you see? He wants our heart to align with his heart. And that means his heart for justice and mercy. We're called to reflect his heart into the world. So what does this mean for you? Well, first, I want us to just reject the false choice to ask you to choose between doing justice and loving God. God clearly wants us to love him passionately and love our neighbor passionately. God wants our emotions and our ethics. Secondly, do what Richard Pratt suggests. Pray with your eyes open. Open your eyes as you pray. Figuratively, maybe even literally. Who are the vulnerable in your midst? And how can you use your God-given resources to lift them? Third, I think this text challenges us to actually do justice and mercy. And not just talk about it. So James Boyce says, quote, To act justly is most important, for it does not mean merely to talk about justice or to get other people to act justly. It means to do the just thing yourself. And I would say, finally, go to the cross. Remember God's salvation, as Micah tells us to do. See, Micah 6, 8 is the anatomy of a heart that is melted by God's grace, his covenant love. And even though Micah brought conviction to God's people, he also brought consolation through the good news. Look at verse 18 of chapter 7. We'll just look at verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in said steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. At the cross, friends, the judge of all becomes the judged in our place. We see on the cross God's full furious justice on display. God is not anything less, as it's been said, than a God of justice. But we also see his said mercy. Don't we? Because at the cross, God unburdens you. He unburdens you by taking on your burdens. And the ways that you hurt others 
And to quote Karen Ellis, the ways that we, we act in treason against the just God of the universe. Jesus unburdens us at the cross. And so only when we see Jesus using his divine privileges, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to serve us and to make us flourish and to give us new life, will we do the same with others? A covenant heart that is melted by God's grace is a heart for God and that is a heart for others. Let's pray. Lord, would you make this true? And as we wrap up this, this time of vision casting, would all of the things we talked about that are very much in seed form grow into what you would have them grow into as a church? As we sort of set our anchor down in these areas, would you help us to unpack them more? Not just in our thinking, but in our doing. So God, would we be a church of covenant love? We are with white hot worship of you, love of you, and also passionate love of neighbor. Make that a, make that a reality, Lord, in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.